Tēnā koutou, nō mai, haere mai. Welcome to q and I'm Jack Tang. Today, flames at the feet of our democracy. The level of violence that we saw when people started lighting fires, you know, there were some moments that were really touch and go. The protest might have ended, but vaccine mandates remain. And with more than 100,000 active cases, why have these things been so hard to get a hold of? Looking at Australia and their Omicron outbreak, you know, when they really started to reach their peak, they too were running out of rapid antigen tests. Uh, they were also out there in the market that we were in trying to buy them. It has been a hell of a week. Ukraine is being bombarded. The IPCC climate report is more dire than ever. Warning, warning. We have more than 150,000 active COVID-19 cases. And right outside the beehive, scenes unlike those New Zealanders have ever witnessed before. protesters were peaceful. Just in the last minute we've seen a fresh line of police in riot gear head out to try and tackle those protesters. Police are moving forward um, in quite a surge line. Throughout the protest, Police Commissioner Andrew Costa was under massive pressure, criticised for not having broken up the protest earlier or using force to disperse the crowds. In our memorable interview a fortnight ago, he explained in detail why he wanted police to continue using restraint. On Wednesday, the crowds were cleared without deaths or serious injuries. Despite initial reports, police don't believe any of their officers suffered so much as a broken bone. So, I went back to Police National Headquarters and once again, I sat down with Commissioner Andrew Costa. When we spoke two weeks ago, I started with a blunt question. Are you too soft? I asked. And I'm going to start with a blunt question again. Are you vindicated? Uh, I don't take too much pleasure from the way things finished. Um, none of us wanted that kind of ending, but um, I'm incredibly proud of the way our team deployed. You will not see a more professional, uh, restrained, courageous response to a situation than you saw there this week. So what changed between the last time we spoke and your decision to go in? We pursued a path of de-escalation uh, over the previous week and that um, allowed us to get in place controls to reduce the number of vehicles and people on the site. Um, and we made real progress with that, and that what really allowed us to get to a stage where we could be confident of being successful uh, this week. We worked incredibly hard with a group of uh, protest leaders to try and 
restore order to the area. And I believe there was at least some genuine intent to achieve that, but what became clear is that they were unable to bring order to the protest. And as that situation became worse, the mix at the protest changed. We saw some of the original um, crowd leave, and we saw people come in who appeared to be there more for defiance and the fight rather than the original issue. But, but what evidence can you give us that the protest was any more violent when you decided to intervene than earlier on? These are, are subtle judgments, but when you see uh, families packing up and going and when you see some of the early groups that arrive saying, actually, this is unpleasant, uh, it's declining. Um, and we saw tensions occurring within the group that were becoming increasingly tense. Uh, we saw an escalation in the poor behaviour towards people in the area, even with a high police presence. Um, this lines up with our experience for other occupations. They do not improve with age. Eventually they uh, decline into uh, disorder and we could see we needed to act. Was it a non-violent protest? Uh, I think the impact of the protests uh, on people around was untenable. There was low-level violence towards people in the area. Um, we were getting increasing complaints about the way uh, people were being spoken to and treated as they passed the site. So it was only a matter of time before we had violence, I believe, between groups inside that protest area. They were remarkable and unnerving scenes for anyone watching the live streams or watching live on television. Was there any point in that intervention where you were concerned that police might lose control? Uh, sitting there watching it from start to finish in our command centre was, um, was very unnerving. You know, the, the level of violence that we saw when people started lighting fires, um, you know, there were some moments that were really touch and go uh, within that protest. But what we saw was an incredible um, teamwork by our people. Uh, a very restrained uh, use of tactics, but the application of tactics when they needed to be to achieve um, the outcome. There was a particular moment where our officers, about three lines of them, were being pelted with pavers from the footpath. Um, they had their shields up and they were being driven backwards. And they were being driven backwards into Lambton Quay, which was you know, city centre full of pedestrians and people finishing up from work. At that moment, our commanders took the decision to use sponge rounds, um, and that shifted the balance, enabled us to regain control, protect the city centre, and ultimately um, de-escalate the whole situation. So some really good decision-making. What would have happened if they didn't do that? Oh, I could see it playing out. We had these lines of officers being driven back by a crowd that was using extreme violence. Um, you know, every risk of that... Uh, situation running off into the shops and who knows what damage could be done. So you think there was a chance that you could have seen a riot? Well there was always a risk with, with this situation and uh, we had to plan very carefully, we had to make sure we had enough staff on the ground uh, and we had to apply those tactics at the right time to stay in control of it. One thing that was evident to me and interesting watching on the live streams was that the vast majority of your officers who were on the grounds of Parliament didn't have batons. Why was that? Uh, we have determined with this to use the minimum necessary force to affect our purpose. 
Um, when we started at, at the beginning of the day, 6am, uh, we had officers without helmets and shields. Um, we began towing cars, we started communicating with everyone on the grounds of Parliament. Um, you know, now is the time to leave. If you want help to leave, we'll help you pack up. We gave every opportunity for people to do so. And then as protester, um, uh, I suppose, force increased, I saw a, a um, protester um, unleash a fire extinguisher in the face of some officers right at the entrance to Parliament. Um, that led to them using pepper spray. So the tactics were used in a restrained way and um, you know you, you simply won't see a uh, more restrained resolution of that situation anywhere in the world. You've used that word so much over the last few days and I think most people watching those live streams would say the word restraint has been entirely justified when police were being pelted with bricks, police were fa facing uh, fires, people were throwing projectiles, driving cars at the front line, police were generally incredibly restrained. That being said, there were a couple of little incidents caught on camera and I want to present one to you. I know you've seen this footage. It was filmed by a News Hub crew and it appears to show a confrontation between officers and a man who arrives. He's wearing a red hat. He intervenes in some sort of skirmish between some officers and it appears from the footage that he may have been punched twice in the head by a police officer and that he may fall to the ground unconscious. Is that restraint? I'm not going to pass my judgment on individual instances. I, all of those will be looked into. Uh, you know, where complaints are made, the IPCA will undertake its investigation. Um, everything I have seen suggests to me that our people were absolutely uh, careful in their response, that they responded to uh, their assessment of the safety uh, of what was going on and indeed where force was applied to them. Um, I, I'm very proud of what our people have done. You feel that way looking at that footage? I'm incredibly proud of our people and uh, you know the wider context around these situations always needs to be considered. Um, you know, I think there was remarkable courage shown uh, when you consider the threat that they faced from that crowd. That incident where the person drove a vehicle towards police, has that person been arrested? Uh, I'm not going to go into the detail of what we're doing there. Um, I'm aware that the vehicle itself has been recovered and uh, we will be investigating a lot of the things that occurred, some quite serious offences, the lighting of fires, the stoking of those fires, um, the throwing of projectiles at police. There's a lot of footage and people can expect to be held accountable. Yeah, let's talk about the footage a little bit. One of the protest organisers, Chantal Baker, live streamed Wednesday to her 70,000 odd Facebook followers. Have police used that video in their investigation? We will use any footage that uh, we can to understand what occurred and where offences have been committed to prosecute those offences. We also had the um, helicopter overhead throughout the time and uh, you know we could see uh, the way different people were operating so there's a lot for us to work with. Were the officers who were injured in this event injured by protesters? Uh, certainly in many cases. Um, there were eight officers injured. Thankfully all of them discharged from hospital within 24 hours. Um, some head injuries from bricks. Uh, leg injury from falling into a, a drain that had been opened up. Uh, there were a range of improvised weapons used. Um, you know, we are very thankful that we didn't experience more serious injury than we did. Head injuries from bricks? Uh, 
yeah, we had uh, some lacerations. Uh, one person, you know, who was sort of feared concussed. So, you know, uh, and many of those people were treated and then demanded to be back out there with their colleagues supporting them. It was, um, the commitment was remarkable. Did police have undercover officers in the protest? Uh, we have officers collecting intelligence. I wouldn't describe um, anyone involved as undercover per se. But there were police officers giving information to police from the protest side of the occupation. Uh, I'm not sure that I, that I could say that that occurred, um, but there were lots of people providing information to police and we obviously had a lot of officers watching what was, what was happening. The reported acid attack on police, do we know anything more about that? I don't have the detail of that. You know, there were lots of substances thrown on the last day, paint and petrol. Um, obviously, officers sprayed with water from but the that hoses. That was earlier on, though, wasn't it? The, the uh, there, there, were, there were incidents earlier on, yeah. I, I had just haven't had the result of, of what came out there. Um, but, you know, bottom line is police uh, experienced a lot of uh, abuse through the course of this. Not from everybody, but um, there was a consistent um, undercurrent of that from uh, people in that crowd. Police made a significant number of arrests following Wednesday, more than 100 at last count. But what happens now? to those protesters when they're bailed? What happens to the protesters who weren't arrested but still feel incredibly angry about the state of affairs? Look, no one wanted the situation to reach the point that it did this week. Um, and I believe we need to think as a nation about what that means for us, um, how we got there and how we're avoid, going to avoid being there in the future. Um, you know, it doesn't do to have sections of our community who are feeling so uh, disconnected from everyone else and a police response deals with the immediate situation uh, but it really um, doesn't address the underlying things that got those people there. And what do you think those things are? It's, it's, not, it's not really my place to comment too much on that but, but what I would say is uh, we've been through two of the most remarkable years that most people could remember. Um, that has seen all sorts of uh, things necessarily in place to keep our communities safe. Um, but when you have those ex extreme measures in place, people will respond to them in unpredictable ways. Uh, and so we need a certain amount of give and take, I think, to recognise the impact that the last two years has had on everybody mm. in different ways um, and find um, a way to have unity so that we don't have these scenes playing out um, you know, in our important places. Do you think having a framework for ending mandates would have been one thing that perhaps would have helped to ease some of the tensions in the protest? Uh, look, that's, that gets into the political domain and it, it's beyond my remit. Police has to deal with what's in front of us, but we do care about... You talked about the give and take there. We do care about unity in our communities because um, just as police is a, a thin blue line and we, we need the consent of most of our community to operate. That's the way our democracy works as well. And if we're not all bought in to the same social contract about how we behave and what we do do and don't do, then we've got a problem. And so I think that those are the things we need to be careful about. What are the lessons from this experience for police? There will be lots, I'm sure, and we will, we will learn those. We will undertake our own uh, operational debrief. Um, no doubt there will be other um, you know, reviews that occur. Uh, I was blown away by the quality of what I saw play out this week. Um, it exceeded even my expectations. 
Um, however, there are always lessons to learn, and um, it's important we debrief and take those lessons. Is there something that stands out to you as perhaps what, you know, something that, with the benefit of hindsight, police could have done differently? Look, I'm aware, uh, for example, in Canberra, police were able to intercept the protest when it arrived at Parliament, redirected it, offered them a camping ground and somewhere to stay, said you can come in uh, to the Parliament every day to protest, but you can't stay there. Um, in hindsight, you know, could we have done something like that? Would it have made the difference? We, we'll never know. Um, once we had an occupation of the size that we did and the momentum that it had, the only way to deal with it was to gradually de-escalate. Um, we didn't get the peaceful resolution that we hoped for, but at least we were able to get the numbers to a point where police could resolve it. What form do you think the inquiry or review should take? That really isn't a matter for me. Um, we will contribute to whatever comes. Um, the Independent Police Conduct Authority is our oversight body. It has a mandate to look into police practice process and procedure. That would be one mechanism. We have um, undertaken uh, reviews working with them in the past that have been very effective. So that's one mechanism. Let's talk about your leadership. Two weeks ago, when we last spoke, an article was published in the Sunday Star Times in which an unnamed beehive source criticised your leadership. Do you know who that was? Uh, no, that's the thing about unnamed um, sources, isn't it's it? It's the thing about you being a police officer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, I, at all times I have done what I've believed to be the right thing to do. Um, the um, importance of this job is not lost on me, and I, I do it from deeply from within the values that I hold. Um, and I'm, uh, I will listen to other perspectives, but ultimately I'll, I will take the choices I think are right. Do you speak with the Prime Minister after Wednesday? Uh, of course, we've spoken regularly. What was her feedback? Uh, at that point, we were fairly uh, just focused on what had happened uh, and um, some of the more factual matters, so I'm sure we'll have a fuller debrief in the fullness of time. Last time we spoke, I asked if you had the confidence of the public, and this was your reply. Ultimately, I will be judged by the history of this. So how do you think history will judge Wednesday? Um, I have been uh, overwhelmed by positive, supportive messages from the public about our approach to the situation and throughout and the resolution on, on Wednesday. Um, my inbox is normally a pretty good gauge about how people are feeling. They don't hesitate to write when they're unhappy. Um, my sense is that people are hugely grateful uh, for the way this um, was managed and I'm confident that we did the best that we could. Police Commissioner Andrew Costa. Just one final note. After our interview, we obtained more footage of that incident where a man appeared to be hit in the head by an officer collapsing on the ground. From this angle, the man clearly lunges at police to try and intervene with an arrest. Whether or not he was actually knocked unconscious still isn't clear. There's a delay between the skirmish and his falling. The police commissioner says he stands by his officer's actions. After the break on Q&A, as Omicron rages, we chase answers on a few key questions. Mandates, isolation periods and the future of the pandemic in New Zealand. Hōki maiti, we welcome back to Q&A. Right now, more than 3% of Aotearoa is known to have COVID-19. There are more people hospitalised than at any other point in the pandemic, but there are potentially hundreds or thousands of people watching these words right now who don't even know they have COVID. 
After all the debate over our border, isolation and MIQ for most Kiwi travellers has ended just like that. So what happens now? I sat down with COVID-19 Minister Chris Hipkins and I began by asking how he felt as police broke up the protest. Uh, it was a mix of, I guess, anxiety and, and sadness, real sadness, actually. Um, there were some people out front who I think didn't know what they had gotten themselves into, and I, I do feel for those people. They'd fallen down a rabbit hole, they'd believed some things that weren't true, um, they'd been sucked in by some people who were very persuasive. Uh, and I, I think it was very, very sad to see them at the end really bewildered by what was going on around them. Uh, but the, the aggression, uh, the, we've never seen that out front of Parliament. I've, I've been in and around this place a long time, and to see that was pretty confronting and, uh, and you know, pretty anxious. I was seeing those fires underneath the trees. The trees are very dry, thinking, you know, if those trees go up, this could be quite a dangerous, even more dangerous situation. And uh, full credit to the police and the fire service who walked into the flames uh, in order to put them out. You were one of the few MPs actually in the Beehive were you scared? Uh, there were certainly moments where it was pretty, you know, we were pretty anxious. When, uh, when they were burning rubber and things like that, there were periods where you couldn't really see what was going on down below, and that bl thick black smoke was heading up and surrounding the building, uh, and that was pretty confronting because we just didn't know what was going on out the front at that point. I appreciate that uh, the protesters had myriad grievances. There were conspiracy theories. There was a lot of misinformation. But do you think the vaccine mandate issue is itself worthy of protest? The vaccine mandate issue is one of the things that as Minister for COVID-19 response I have spent the most time thinking very deeply about. Um, I'm someone who is quite liberal in my views and generally speaking thinks that people should be free to live their lives as they see fit. But there, there are trade-offs here. and people's personal choices have consequences for other people. And so we haven't said that every, any, anybody has to be vaccinated, but we have said that to do some things, to expose yourself to some other people, you should have to be vaccinated in order to do those jobs. And, you know, look, I, I accept it. That's a, big, that's a big call to make. And if we turn the clock back, some of those people who are now arguing against the mandates were saying we were too slow to put them in place in the first place. Um, actually, we, we, we took our time around putting those, those in place because I I wanted to be absolutely certain that they were proportionate and that they were justified. Well, as someone who has spent so much time considering this very delicate issue, what is the framework under which those mandates might be lifted? Where are we going to go with these? Those mandates should absolutely only be in place for as long as they are absolutely justified. So, for example, let's talk about where we started. We started with our border workforce. That made absolute sense. COVID-19 wasn't circulating in New Zealand at that time, and we wanted to do everything we could to keep it out. So having our frontline workers, who were the most at risk of coming into contact with COVID-19, and therefore potentially bringing it back into the community. Having them vaccinated made absolute sense. And then if you flow through from there and you look at all of the other requirements, there's always been a really strong justification. So teachers, it was because they were working with a proportion of the population who at that time could not be vaccinated, were some of the most vulnerable to getting COVID-19. Our frontline health workers, you know, you go to hospital to get better, not to be infected. Uh, so there is a really strong rationale there. So you're going to stagger the removal of those mandates for those different sectors? 
I think once we get to the point where they're no longer justified for some sectors, what then is that yes. Point? Well, it, it's not going to be an all at once. You're not going to wake up one morning and say and, and find that suddenly all of those requirements are gone. Uh, for our frontline health workers, for example, that. that strong rationale, that strong public health basis is likely to be there for a while. So which sectors will lose mandates first? Oh, look, I wouldn't want to go into that, but we will keep that under really constant review. And where a mandate no longer makes sense or where it is no longer justified on public health grounds, then, of course, we'll be removing it. I mean, if the modelling is to be believed, we will experience a surge in cases over the coming weeks and then quite a sharp drop-off. So is it realistic to expect that within a matter of months some or all of those mandates will have been lifted. I think it's one of the things that's been interesting about following the protest out front was that when people talk about mandates, they're often talking about different things. So some of them certainly are talking about mandates in the way that we, we know them, which is um, the, the requirement to be vaccinated in terms, and to, to undertake certain work. But some of the people are talking about the vaccine pass that we scan when we go into you know, a restaurant or, or something like that. And they regard that as a mandate but as I'm well. I'm just talking about the, 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 the vaccine mandates that stop say, teachers or health workers from having a job if they refuse to be vaccinated? In, in the next... It, it really depends how long our in peak is going to take. Well, it really depends how long our peak but, is I mean, going to take. The modelling is pretty consistent everywhere, If, right? if the modelling is telling us that the next few months are going to be the peak and that we'll then come down from that, as we come down from that peak and as we see where the residual areas of concern are for us, then we'll be able to make those kind of decisions. But, you know, models are just that. They're models. They're not, a, they're not an absolute prediction of what's going to happen. And we may find that there are particular areas where COVID-19 takes hold and takes longer to get you know, back under control, if you like. And so it's, it's hard to predict you know, exactly how that's going to play out. Let's talk about Omicron. We are recording tens of thousands of new cases every day at the moment. How close are those numbers to the real infection numbers, do you think? Oh, I think there's certainly more infection in the community than the testing numbers will be showing. How much more do you think? Oh, it potentially could be quite significant. I think there are a lot of people uh, who will be experiencing very mild symptoms. Some of them will be staying home and some of them will just be completely oblivious to the fact that they might have COVID-19. Um, my own colleague, David Parker, and you know who is uh, the first cabinet minister to have tested positive and the conversation that I had with him yesterday indicated that if he'd not taken a test he may not have even known that he had COVID-19 because the symptoms have been pretty mild. I mean some of the modelling suggests that the infection rate could be as high as five times higher than those daily counts. Do you think it's that high? Oh, I think that's certainly possible. I think there will be a lot of people who uh, perhaps, you know, if they might be thinking oh, I've, I'm feeling a little bit like I've got a cold or a bit of hay fever or, or something like that I'll just see if it gets worse before I do anything about it. And I suspect you know, there's a bit of that in the Kiwi psyche sometimes. We'll just see if it gets worse before we get a test. Um, and that could well be result resulting in us not picking up a lot of cases. I mean, one thing that could have helped us to identify cases earlier was greater access to rat tests in this response, certainly in the first part of this response. Why didn't we have more rat tests earlier? We started uh, late last year trying to buy as many tests as we could, and the international market at that point, of course, was really exploding with demand for rapid so antigen tests. you bought 13 tests. million in November and December. Was that as many as you could have bought at that time? That was as many as were available at the time. We basically get it, got, got out there and started to buy everything we could get our hands on. So we've now got to the point where we'll really see big numbers coming in this month, you know, potentially 100 million by the end of the month. But I suppose if we have more than 100,000 cases and it could be five times higher than that, the argument is that we needed rat tests a month ago, not now. Yeah, I mean, look, we did start ordering them as soon as we got to that point where we thought, yep, this is likely to be what we're going to need to do. Uh, 
But, of course, you know, every other country at that point was making that same decision as we were. Is there anything you could have done with the benefit of hindsight to get more rat tests in New Zealand sooner? Well, if, if you look back on the COVID-19 response, knowing what we know now, uh, there are lots of decisions that you might make so a bit what differently. what would you have done for the rat but we, but we didn't know what we, knew, what we know, I know now. I know. So with the benefit of hindsight, what, what would you have done? Oh, potentially we would have bought more rapid antigen tests earlier if we'd been able to get hold of them. But of course, you've got to keep in mind that uh, when we were using PCR tests as our mainstay of our testing, there was a really good rationale for that. We couldn't afford to have cases slipping through the cracks. It's only once you get into this, the state that we're in now well, where we've the got widespread... the nature of the outbreak. Yeah, that's right. But, but in, in, in the case of Delta, we were still trying to get that back down you know, and really suppress it. We couldn't afford to miss cases. Whereas, you know, because rapid antigen tests, let's be clear about that, they're not as reliable as a PCR test, but they have other advantages in the sense that they're easy to use, uh, they're very quick, uh, and so there are advantages there. I mean, your critics would say that all the evidence you needed was overseas. Every other country that it was, ex was experiencing Omicron outbreaks could see that actually having rapid antigen tests was the key to quickly identify cases so that people could, you know, could, could let their close contacts know. But that's not something you necessarily did quickly enough. You, you'd been receiving advice for the best part of 18 months from your own advisors telling you to expand your testing capacity outside of those traditional PCR tests, and you didn't. Well, if you look at rapid antigen tests, you know, one of the reasons that we didn't expand the use of rapid antigen tests is we weren't willing to accept you know, potentially missing one in five cases, mm. uh, because that, that potentially would have set us a, a long way back in our response to Delta and into to earlier variants. Looking at Australia and their Omicron outbreak, you know, when they really started to reach their peak, they too were running out of rapid antigen tests. Uh, they were also out there in the market that we were in trying to buy them. Uh, so, uh, you know, we were looking very closely at what other countries were doing. What part of the health system is under the greatest strain at the moment? Look, I think you know the the primary health care and you know the frontline health workers who deal with people every day are under an enormous amount of pressure because they're doing testing. They're trying to do all of the things that they would normally do in terms of providing health care to to New Zealanders, and they're trying to do that in a, an environment where they're trying to keep themselves safe. So much more telehealth, much more you know t treating people in car parks, uh, and so that's putting them under a lot of strain. That, that's interesting. So primary health care, GPs and the like, as opposed to necessarily people in hospitals? We know that the pressure on our hospitals is only going to grow from here. At the moment, you know, if we look at our hospitalisation rates, it's still certainly within a manageable level. That's not to say that that won't be putting strain on hospitals. Anything that puts more people in hospital puts hospitals under strain. But it's the primary health care. But, but it is concerned. primary health care at this point that seem to be really, uh, you know, dealing with the front lines of our response. Uh, our ICU capacity is still, you know, there's still capacity there, there are still ventilators there, there are still ward beds available within our hospitals. But of course, we do expect that we're going to see numbers of hospitalisations going up. There are almost a million New Zealanders eligible for a booster shot who haven't received one. Why is that? I think there are a lot of people who are going to get a booster, they just haven't gotten around to it yet. When? And, and you know, our message to them, we're doing all we can to really push that message, is now, now is good, do it now. Um, ideally, now's actually the perfect time to do it, because if you, get a, if you get a booster shot today, in a couple of weeks when you might potentially be exposed to COVID-19, your immunity is going to be at its absolute peak. So why 
given your success with the with the initial vaccine rollout, with the, the initial two shots, why is there a real disconnect there? Why did you manage to get such a high percentage of the population vaccinated with the first two shots, but this final shot, the booster shot, you're struggling with? Look, there, there's, there's no evidence to suggest that there's a greater degree of hesitancy Except around Except that boosters. a million people haven't been but, boosted. But, but I think there is evidence to suggest that there's a, a greater degree of complacency uh, there. So people are, are just going about their day-to-day -day lives they are saying, yep, yeah, we'll get boosted, just haven't got round to it yet. And so my message to them is, get round to it now. Yeah. Are you going to change the isolation period for people who test positive? We haven't made decisions on that yet. That's one of those things that we keep under regular review. Um, I think it, it is certainly a possibility that we'll have a shorter period of isolation. What would you need to see to introduce Well, well there, is, there is a risk associated with that as well. So if you go from 10 days to, say, 7 days, you know that there will be people who, at the end of that 7 days, are still infectious. Uh, there'll be more people in that category than there are after 10 days. And so those are the sorts of trade-offs that we make. And so we always keep that under constant review to, you know, because there may well come a point where it becomes justified to do that. We're not there yet. Mm. I, I mean, there will be some who say that if we're recording 20,000 cases a day and you say that it could be five times higher than that, 100,000 cases a day, what difference does it make going from a 10-day to a 7-day? If we increase the chance of, of you know, infections even just a little bit, does it really matter when you have case numbers of that magnitude? The main rationale for reducing from, say, 10 days to 7 days would be to keep things going, would be to make sure that the whole, whole country doesn't grind to a halt. And at the moment, the country is functioning pretty well uh, with, with still using 10 days. I mean, look at uh, you know, Australia has 7 days, the UK has 7 days, it's 5 days in the US. Is there the potential that you are dissuading people from recording their their positive COVID tests because they don't want to stand down for 10 days and that if you reduce that stand down period actually you get a better grip on the number of infections. Well, all of those countries are further ahead in their dealing with the Omicron outbreak than we are. So we're still in the early days compared to where they are. They've been dealing with this for months. Uh, we're, we're still re relatively speaking we're kind of weeks into, the, into what is potentially quite a large outbreak. So our situation is different but we can learn from what they are doing and of course we can learn from, from what's working for them and what's not working for them and try and make make sure that we uh, build those lessons into our, how we respond here. What is the scientific rationale behind requiring vaccine passes and requiring people to scan in? Ultimately, it is about turning down the potential spread of COVID-19. We still need to be making sure that we're protecting people, including protecting the unvaccinated. Take scanning, for example. Now, this is something I've been looking really closely at in the last few days as to whether there's still a rationale for that. Um, and so I, we haven't made decisions on that yet, but we are looking pretty closely at it. But if I just use that as an illustration, if you're scanning in somewhere and then you get a QR code alert that says, actually, you know, you've potentially been exposed to COVID, it means that you are then in a better position to make decisions for yourself about how you respond to that. You're not required to isolate when you get that, but you might well think, actually, I was at that place, I wasn't wearing a mask, Maybe this weekend's not the time to go and see my grandmother who's in an aged residential care facility. We're asking people now to take personal responsibility for helping to keep other people around them safe. Will you reintroduce contact tracing once we get to the other side of this peak? It's quite possible, but it, it might not necessarily look the way that it's uh, looked previously. We do have to accept that we are going to be moving to a state where COVID-19 is going to be out there and it's not going to go away. We're not going to get back to an elimination phase with COVID-19. Those days are past us now. So uh, what we do from here is going to look different to what we've done in the past. It is an historic occasion, and I suppose given the news week, um, it's kind of remarkable that this isn't front-page news, but New Zealanders arriving back in New Zealand 
isolant, no longer have to go into MIQ, no longer have to self-isolate. What are you going to do with MIQ facilities? I've said, I said this you know, yesterday that dealing with MIQ has been one of the hardest parts of being Minister for COVID-19 response because I do get the letters from people who have been separated because of those border restrictions. And no matter what we do, there were always going to be a group of people who just couldn't come into the country. And I tell you, no one is more relieved to be in a position where people can, get, you know, can come home, they can be reunited. No one is more relieved by that than me. Uh, that is one of the things that's kept me most awake at night uh, over the last year and a half and it's been a really tough balancing act because we've been trying to keep New Zealanders safe, we've been trying to avoid the worst excesses of COVID-19 we've seen around the world and our MIQ is the way that we have done that but I don't ever doubt the consequences that that's had for people. So MIQ I think is likely to wind back significantly from here. When? We're already expecting, well demand in the next two weeks is going to go down to a very, very small residual number. It'll be those who don't otherwise qualify to come into the country and that's at the moment largely just the unvaccinated. Uh, so that we're talking maybe a couple of hundred people a week. So you'll see quite a significant shift there. Does, does we've done, that, a, we've done a lot of work over the last uh, you know year and a half to think about what sort of quarantine capacity do we need in the longer term though? So I'm not saying that everything will disappear because actually we may need a standing quarantine capacity to deal with future variants, future outbreaks, even different pandemics. And so we've got that opportunity, but we don't need to rush into that. Um, we've got time to work through. But a lot of those hotels will be back to being hotels sooner rather than later. Right, like within the next month, say. Well, it, they have a 90-day period where we have to give them 90 days' notice. It's quite possible that some of those hotels will want to sort of buy their way, us to buy our way out of that so that they can get back to being hotels. Those are all commercial discussions that happen between the hotels and the team who run MIQ. But certainly we're we are going to be no longer requiring many of those facilities within the next month or so. Have you done any modelling as to the health effects of long COVID in the New Zealand population? It's difficult to model, um, and it's very, very difficult to model, uh, because, of course, we don't know what, our, what the high, high rates of vaccination that we currently have in New Zealand are going to do in terms of things like long COVID. Other countries that have really suffered from this, in many cases it's been people who haven't previously had the opportunity to be vaccinated. So we're, we're in a kind of a unique position uh, when it comes to things like long COVID, but we do see the effects of that from people who have come home. You know, they've been infected overseas and they've come home because they're still suffering from the long-term lag effect um, of having had COVID-19. If there is another more dangerous strain, will you close the borders again? Look, you can never say never, but I think we have to accept that the borders uh, reopening is a very difficult egg to unscramble. Um, and so uh, we did, we, you know, we, we were slow and careful and considered in our decisions around border reopening, precisely because it's, it does tend to be a one-way uh, set of decisions when you do that. That's not to say in a future pandemic, which may be a variant of COVID-19 or it might be something else, mm. that the government of the day, whenever that may happen, uh, might have to make some tough calls then as well. So one of, our, one of our goals in the next few months is to make sure that whenever that happens, whether it's now, whether it's a year's time, five years, ten years, that we're making sure we've captured the lessons from this one uh, so that we can build that into whoever, you know, and, 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 and use the tools available to support whoever has to respond to that in the future. Finally then, compared to any other point in this pandemic response, without wanting to be too optimistic, is there reason to believe we might just be seeing the beginning of the end? 
Uh, look, I've been optimistic all of the way through this, and sometimes that's led to a bit of disappointment. I never would have imagined that we would have had border restrictions in place for two years. Uh, there were moments a year ago where I could see maybe, maybe we're just getting to the point where we can finally do away with these, and we're a year down the track from that, and, and we're only just doing that now. Uh, but yes, I do feel like um, New Zealanders can start looking forward to, uh, to getting back to something that feels a lot, lot more normal than what we've had over the last two years. COVID-19 Response Minister Chris Hipkins. If you want to contact the Q&A team, please, kōrero mai. These are our main platforms. You can hit us up on email, Twitter or on Facebook. Next, what did Te Party Māori make of the protest and how it all ended? Kia ora te Welcome back to Q&A. The protests at Parliament included many Māori. You probably saw Tino Rangatiratanga flags and Māori iconography. And one party says many Māori were used as pawns by the alt-right during the occupation. Rawari Waititi is the co-leader of Te Pāti Māori and he joins us now live. Tēnā koe, thanks for being with us on Q&A. What was your overriding feeling as you watched those scenes on Wednesday? Well, actually, uh, before Wednesday, uh, from day one, um, you could, you could see there was a sense of, uh, um, of a different way to about this, this particular protest. And so by the time Wednesday had come along, yes, um, you know, we've, but we've got to look at the core of, um, of what the reason why many of our people were at that protest. And so I mentioned in a speech in, in Parliament about the, the core of this for, for many Māori is, uh, uh, is colonisation. And colonisation has played its part uh, in terms of the degradation of our of our mana <clears throat> motuhake and our tinoranga tiratanga. Uh, but let, let's not get that confused with the freedom marches all around the world because they are two, two very different things. You talked about the iconography. Uh, Trump flags, Confederate flags should never, ever fly with tinoranga tiratanga and hefakaputanga flags. The Trump flag and the, and the um, Confederate flags, they, they, they have been there and have actively campaigned against the oppression of uh, of indigenous and black peoples all over the mm. world, um, you know you've you've got uh, tr you know if you look at the Trump you look at Trump's comments you know about Mexican immigrants and being criminals and rapists and Muslims uh, you know wanting to stop Muslims from migrating to to the US all of those types of things should never have a place and, and that rhetoric should never have a place here in Aotearoa and they should never ever fly with Tinoranga Tiratanga and Mana Mutaki. So, so, uh, so Rawari, why, why why were there so many Maori at the protest? Do you think and why did we see? Tinoranga flags at the protest? Uh, because um, the, our people have been used uh, in regards to the, there's a difference between Tinoranga Tiratanga and Mana Motuhake. Those particular kaupapa we have been fighting for for 182 years, and that's the sovereign rights under, our tiriti, under the Tiriti Awaitangi. Uh, these freedom marches, uh, you know, if you look at the impacts of uh, uh, mandates in the last six months, they do not compare to the 182 years of plight that uh, the Iwi Māori have been fighting for. And so this is the problem is that our people and those particular kaupapa have been used uh, to push this particular agenda. Yes, yeah. I have aroha for our whānau that have been impacted by mandates, and we need to do something about that. And to note that we were the only party out of five in the whole of Parliament to vote against mandates because of that very reason. Let me ask a bit more about that then. Do you think if mandates hadn't been introduced, we wouldn't have seen the protests at Parliament? Um, and no, I don't, because I think the protests had a mixture of a whole lot of other things. Mm. And so as you saw the rollout of the vaccine, uh, 
uh, uh, throughout Aotearoa, there were many people who were disgruntled by the vaccine. Uh, there were many there 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 are many uh, other ideologies out there that that uh, is created through uh, conspiracies and misinformation. And so I think the mandates is one thing, yes, and I totally agree with that. Uh, the government mandate should not have happened. That, that mm. there should have been a wider discussion with Marai, uh, with Iwi, who actually had their own processes in place before there was vaccination mm. uh, in the first lockdown in uh, uh, you know back back in uh, two years ago. And so what we were saying was put the mana back into into whānau, put the mana back into those organisations to be able to make up their own tikanga uh, about how they engage with their people. Um, yep, in terms of uh, the protest, I think there was a, a mixture of a whole lot of other things happening there. And if you peel away the mat, uh, mm. you will find that there was, there was more than just anti-mandate. Your former party co-leader, Marama Fox, attended the protests and, of course, your uh, party's founder, Tariana Turia, expressed support for the protests. Why was that? Um, well, look, I, I can't control I can't control uh, past leaders and past presidents of, of our of our movement. But and so um, there were parts of the protest, like I said, the man, anti-mandate stuff mm. uh, that we were that we were totally supportive of. Uh, but not going down to that protest doesn't mean we didn't hear our people. Like I said, we were the only ones that put out a policy around um, lift, the lifting of government mandates. So let's get some perspective on this. You know, Debbie and I are only two out of 120 MPs. We're only one party out of five. Yeah. Uh, that are continuously uh, pushing these uh, uh, boundaries. And just to note, we have been on many a front line of many protests. We are just in the front line of a different protest as activists now, and that is in the front the front line of the Chamber of yeah. uh, Representatives. So, so, so you said earlier, though, that, and you said in your speech uh, in the House on Thursday that you believe many Māori had been used as pawns by the alt-right during these protests. So do you think that Marama Fox and Tariana Turia have been misled? Um, no, because uh, the, the very core of their reasons uh, for, for supporting this kaupapa was around the mandates. Um, the other one is around choice. And so we've been pro-choice, we've been, we've been mm. pro-vaccination, and we've been anti-mandate. We've been very, very clear on that. Mm. And so the choice for people to make those decisions should have been to the people themselves and not been forced by, by mm. mandates. And so, look, you know, we, we've had people on the ground at that, uh, uh, at that protest, uh, Jack, uh, you know, um, we're listening on the ground to, to what was happening there. We've had many people threaten our lives and the lives of our whanau. And, um, you know, we weren't, they, they, many people weren't following um, um, the health guidelines either. Nobody was wearing masks. Uh, there was no mm. leadership. So being called down to, to that particular protest meant who were we meeting with? Mm. Um, how was that going to happen? Um, many people, yes, okay, there were some people that wanted to wanted us to go and listen to them, but there were others that wanted targets, obviously. Yeah. The first two days of that protest, I, I listened and watched from my, my uh, office window, and I could see they had written on, on the concrete, hang them high. Um, they wanted to execute us, not just us, but also the media. And so my whanau made the conscious decision to say, do not go down there. Uh, do not put your put yourself at risk. <clears throat> but to, to know everybody out there is that we stood up against mandates and we will continue to do that, even though there is no protest outside of Parliament today. Rawiri, I'm going to ask you a very difficult question. After a divisive incident like this, how do you think we go about trying to reunite the country? I think that's a that's a big question, uh, uh, Jack, and um, we need to to look at. I think the, the biggest part for for the for the best unity of this country is actually to go on to Tiriti Waiting and, and and now let's start looking at constitutional transformation uh, for Aotearoa. Uh, where man, uh, Tangata Whenua and Tangata Tiriti can come together and make uh, um, uh, equal and, and equ equitable decision-making for all. Uh, but right now, 
We need uh, the government to adopt some of our policies within our COVID-19 response policy. We need to speed up the establishment of a Māori health authority. We need to transfer all Māori-targeted DHP vaccination program funding to Māori health, whānau order and iwi providers. We need to share the vaccination data with Māori health and iwi providers so we can have a targeted approach to dealing with our whānau out there. We need to ensure ethnicity data across all COVID-19, including mm. travel exemptions of MIQ applications are collected. We need more resource into home isolation, Jack. Many of our whānau, they will be uh, locked out of their mahi, could be for months, if, depending mm. on how many are there. And we also need a support package for those who have been impacted by the mandates. So you can't say you've got no job, no no jab, no job. We need to put some resources uh, uh, beside them. We need to work through this together, and we need to start looking at how we can um, uh, uh, start to bring the country together by ensuring that we leave nobody behind. Tēnā kuia. We always appreciate your time. Thank you so much. The co-leader of Te Pāti Māori. After the break on Q&A, residents of one of our biggest cities who say they don't have democracy. Will Tauranga get local elections or will unelected commissioners remain in charge of the city? Who should be in charge of Tauranga? For more than a year now, the city has been in the hands of four commissioners after the government decided to replace the elected city council because of governance issues. An announcement is due shortly on whether the commissioners will stay on or whether local elections will take place instead. Reporter Fina Owen went to Tauranga and found a city divided. In a quiet Tauranga street, resident Danika Wilkinson is preparing for a fight. We have stopped paying our rates um, and I know that they're going to charge us penalties. The Wilkinsons insist they're only paying rates to a council the people have elected. Not when we're under commissioners. Commissioners led by former National MP Anne Tolley. They were appointed by local government minister Nanaya Mahuta a year ago after constant infighting on council ended in the resignation of this mayor. Tauranga's future as a city of strategic importance to New Zealand cannot be left to a small group of petty politicians. Many in the community were also fed up. That's been the trouble with uh, past council, I think. The tails wagged the dog and the dog lost its bark. Tommy Wilson leads a trust that helps Tauranga's homeless and poorer families into houses. We had no engagement with the council or any of the mayors. Uh, um, it wasn't until the commissioners came on board. Uh, we've met with them three times. They know exactly what we're doing over here. Tauranga is in a hurry, sprawling at a pace. This is Fletcher's new $400 million wallboard plant, which will bring in 100 employees from their Auckland operations. But local businessman Jamie Lunham claims council mismanagement means the city's infrastructure hasn't been able to cope with the influx of people. We're in big trouble. And so, and so sometimes you do need to send administrators in to sort stuff out, just like in a commercial op uh, operation. And so that's what this is about. It's not about losing democracy. It's about uh, creating a line in the sand, getting some stuff done, getting the house in order, and then handing back to democracy. Tauranga is by no means alone in grappling with serious problems around the council table. Questions have been raised, for instance, about the competence of both Wellington and Invercargill City Councils and where that may lead. I have huge concerns for the erosion of democracy in New Zealand. We're seeing it every day. Everybody loves the sunshine.
we deserve democracy in Tauranga. We've learnt the lesson. It should now be returned. Michael O'Neill is from the Tauranga Ratepayers Alliance. We have the the um, competencies, the personnel, and this is a large city in this city that can govern and do it effectively. And it would be arrogant to assume that we cannot. At the moment, there isn't anybody that we can go to and trust and ask um, questions to get things done because we have a commission who, how do we get in contact with them? We don't have anybody that is looking after us. Why do you think the business lobby is going hard on... What's on it for them? That's exactly the question we should be asking. So, so the likes of the developer community, I mean, they're business people, and at the end of the day, they're out to optimise their profits. So, so in a sense, there must be something in it for them. And that's the question, as you ask, probably we as a community should be asking as well. For over 40 years, retired businessman Morris O'Reilly has watched Tauranga City grow up around him. He sees the city's woes as a warning for the ratepayers countrywide. Democracy is a very, very precious thing. And when you lose it is when you realise just how valuable it is. And we've lost it. And I think you'll find the majority of people in Tauranga started out being sort of nonplussed about the whole thing, but now they're becoming quite concerned. Danica wants people to show their concern by joining her in not paying their rates. If more people felt that they could stand together to demonstrate that, you know, what's happening in Tauranga is not acceptable, that would probably work a lot better than just, you know, one or two people. She's hoping Tauranga will go to the polls like the rest of the country in October. Not so for Tommy Wilson. You've got to have business acumen balanced with community connectivity if you're going to run a $4.3 billion business. And, and we've got that now, so yeah, well done to them. Stay there, keep out the clowns. <laughs> Fina Owen with that report. To see you know, Q&A sought an interview with Tauranga's Chair of Commissioners, Anne Tolley, but we were declined on the grounds that Local Government Minister Nanai Mahuta is yet to announce her decision. Stick around, Q&A will be right back. Welcome back. <clears throat> Just before we go, this has been an extremely difficult week for the Q&A team. Last Sunday, our former executive producer, Claire Sylvester, died. Claire worked on our programme for many years. She was the EP during the 2020 New Zealand and US election campaigns. <clears throat> she produced TVNZ's debates and election coverage that year. Claire was a fiercely intelligent thoughtful, giggly colleague. More importantly, she was a loved daughter, sister, wife and mum. We're thinking of Scotty, the boys, Claire's friends and family. Claire was close to many of us and we will really, really miss her. Kuomotu. That is Q&A for this week. From the Q&A team, thanks for watching and nā mihi kia koutou i ngā karere. Hey Tierra Wiki, we will see you next Sunday at 9 a.m. QA is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand on air.